Tonight's scripture will be Psalm 78. And when you get there, go ahead and stand for the reading of the word. And it, uh, it is a bit long, so prepare yourselves. <laughs> All right. Psalm 78, a mascal of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread? Or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard he was full of wrath, a fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel." In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. 
how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruit of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out the nations before them. He apportioned for them a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he had dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. This is the word of the Lord. Church, tonight we approach Psalm 78, and not just this week, but also next week, we will find ourselves in this psalm because, as you no doubt noticed, there's a lot to get through. And so, rather than trying to get it all in one go, we'll try to at least get halfway through the text tonight uh, and then pick up whatever we don't get to next week. But the main point of Psalm 78 I want to put before you now so you can be thinking about it as we look at the psalm together. The psalm is all about Christ and his unfaithful people, or as I've titled it, Christ and his fickle bride. God is mentioned throughout this psalm, and as God is mentioned throughout this psalm, you'll notice there's kind of a a flat consistency to his character. He's 
steadfast, faithful, immovable. He, he's the one you can rely on and count on. And the people of Israel are mentioned also throughout this psalm, not as steadfast and consistent, but rather as changing, uh, as very much movable, as very much uh, prone to sway and shift as the times uh, move on. And so this psalm teaches us not only about who God is, what his character is like, but also about what God's people are like. And in that dynamic between God and his people, we learn a lot both about ourselves and about the God whom we serve and worship. So Psalm 78 has this through line, uh, striking the balance between God and his people and examining how their relationship has developed over time. And it is a lot of verses, but one of the great benefits of Psalm 78 is if you get it, you have the spark notes or the cliff notes version of at least a third, if not half of your Old Testament down. If you've got Psalm 78, you've summarized yourself the Torah, uh, you've summarized for yourself the historical books, all the way up until really anything after David, Psalm 78 covers all of those events. And it does so with a theological lens to interpret all of the stuff that these other narratives tell us about. For instance, in Exodus, we find out about Israel and their grumbling in the wilderness. Psalm 78 comments on that and, and gives us a theological understanding for how we are to understand the grumbling. Uh, we are to understand it as Israel's consistent rebellion over and against God's consistent faithfulness towards them. And so Psalm 78 uh, is really much of your Old Testament summarized. And so I think it's worth, at least for the next two weeks, taking time to understand it as, as far as we can in our time together. One of the things we learn in Psalm 78, at least in the opening verses, is that history is a powerful teacher for us today. You'll notice uh, the psalmist opens, in this case, Asaph, and he writes, Give ear, O people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and have known that our fathers have told us. He's giving Israel, what he's about to do is give them a historical recollection of things. And he's telling them, hey, you have to learn, listen, and pay attention to history because it's going to teach you about yourself and about your future. As the saying goes, and you've probably heard, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat history. Or uh, we might say here, uh, those who don't understand the history of their own people are doomed to fall victim to that history over and over again. As we see with Israel, the goal of the teaching in the psalm, verse 3, is that they would learn from the historical failings of their fathers and ultimately correct and not make those same mistakes going into the future. That's the whole goal of Asaph in this psalm, is to get you to understand Israel's history so you won't make the same mistakes that Israel makes. Uh, our knowledge and understanding of history, particularly God's history of his own people, is extremely important as you and I walk out our Christian lives today. Because history is a better teacher than experience. What I mean by that is you uh, in your life, as you live and experience things in the world, you pick up data about the world around you. You pick up uh, things, you learn things about yourself, you learn things about other people, you learn things about your own sin tendencies, you learn things about your desires and how the world works, and experience is a kind of teacher for us. But history is a much better teacher than experience because it gives us a better access to information from a larger sample size 
with a longer view of history and a scope of time, and it gives us all that data, we might say, free of charge, meaning you don't have to pay for the cost of the lesson. If you learn a lesson from experience, you have to pay the cost. Whether it's a good lesson or a bad lesson, you're paying for it. Yourself, you're taking the full brunt of that, that cost. But history is a better teacher because it gives you the lesson for free, as long as you're willing to listen and pay attention. That's one of the great values of history. And this isn't just true of, of Christians. Everyone recognizes that history is valuable and important. One of the things that economists do today when they're studying how our economy is growing and inflation is going on now, they understand that through the lens of how those inflations have happened historically in other countries over time. And that's what gives hope of understanding, hope for insight, and ultimately hope for correction so that the same mistakes other countries have made, our country won't make. Even economists learn from history. And uh, it's not only that, but war generals and war strategists will learn from history. It's in the conflict of the Vietnam War that the United States government learned a lot of lessons, which it had to copy and paste when it moved into Afghanistan and Iran. Now, we could argue whether they learned those lessons appropriately or not. But nevertheless, there was a lesson to be learned there that they tried to adapt and understand. So it is for you as a Christian. History teaches you a great deal about your own walk with God. Namely, it's going to teach you this, that God is consistent and faithful, and you can count on the fact that you won't be. God is unmoving, unwavering, always there, and we are not. Consider the opposite caricature of God that is present today in the world. That people are who they are, they live how they ought to live, they embrace their true identity, and God is really this fickle judge who lives on high, wanting to swat people when they do things that are really natural and innate to them. That he's this cruel tormentor, this very wrathful man who's sitting up there and rather arbitrarily punishing some people and giving other people a free ride. That's what the world believes about God. But what Psalm 78 does is it says, hey, let's look at this through a thousand-year lens of history. And what you'll notice is God's actually not some arbitrary judge who sits up in heaven waiting to punish people. He's actually long-suffering, patient, slow, and faithful. Israel and the people of God are the ones who are very quick to move from one position to the other, very arbitrary in their judgments, very fleeting in their commitments. And for Christians, the one truth that rings clear in that lesson is that the thing that terrifies us the most is dealt away with. What terrifies us the most often is that when we are known and understood fully, when all of our sins are exposed, when all, all of our fleeting uh, desires and all of our weak-willed uh, emotions and uh, habits are put forward, that people will look at us and they will reject us and we will be left alone. And we think about that with God as well. That if God was to know us truly, see us in all of our sin, bear with us for any length of time, eventually we begin to convince ourselves that eventually he'll be done with us. Eventually he'll drop us because he realizes this isn't what he signed up for. And what Psalm 78 does is it gives us a broader lens and says your, your great worry and desire when you go to confess your sin to God that he will wash his hands of you and be done with you is an unfounded concern because God has proved his faithfulness for thousands of years towards Israel in all of their nonsense. And so the projection is, and he will with you as well, since you are his people. So Psalm 78 teaches us from a historical standpoint 
all of these lessons. And with that lengthy introduction, let's dive ourselves into the verses of the psalm. I've already covered the first three verses. The point is that history is the teacher. And in verse 4, we are told what the purpose of learning is. The purpose of learning the lesson of history is that we will not hide them from our children, but we will tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and of his might and all of the wonders that he has done. He has established his testimony in Jacob. He has appointed his law in Israel, which he has commanded our fathers to teach to their children. So the purpose of us learning this lesson is that we would pass that on to the next generation. Through the Great Commission, through making of disciples, through raising up children in Christian homes, the charge to Christians is that the lesson doesn't stop with you, but that you take the responsibility seriously to pass that lesson on to those whom you are discipling, to those whom you are raising up as children in the faith, and also to those who are your natural-born offspring as well. The idea is that Christians are responsible to pass these lessons forward to the next generation. Why? Verse 6, so that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children. The idea is that you pass it on, and then your children learn the lessons, and they pass them on as well, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but rather keep his commandments, so that they should not be like their fathers, so that the children who you teach these lessons to would not make the mistakes of generations past, the stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The goal of the instruction is that you stop the cycle of apostasy, you stop the cycle of rebellion, and you turn it into a cycle of steadfast faithfulness. This is the hope of teaching and instructing the next generation. I think it has been well said, the church is never more than one generation away from heresy, never one generation away from apostasy. Because all it takes is one generation of people who won't defend the truth and won't guard the truth for the church to lose much of its inheritance and much of its deposit. All it takes is one generation of people to accept false teaching and false beliefs about God before the truth is lost. And what Psalm 78 tells us is one of the ways to stop that cycle is by making sure you take seriously the charge to pass on the knowledge that you have been blessed with. Because when you pass away, the people who you leave behind are responsible for carrying on that weight and going forward. Now, we might say that it's a great providence of God that the church has existed as long as it has, because we can point to times in the church's history where she was on the cusp of going into darkness, on the cusp of having her light snuffed out. And we know that it's by God's graciousness that he raised up people who would defend the truth and guard her from false teaching. Uh, it's in the generation of Jesus and his apostles that the Jewish people are saved from their blindness about God and exposed to the marvelous truth that the promise of the Messiah is finally come. And they, they're, they're casting off all of the nonsense about earning their salvation before God, and they're believing once again on the hope of a salvation which has been merited by God through his Messiah. So the truth in that generation is almost snuffed out, and Jesus brings it back through his apostles and through the gift of the Spirit. And I would say that's also true today as well, that the church, even in the 21st century, is not really too far away from losing the truth of the gospel because of how quick it is to lose its historical understanding. The history of God's people matter, and I would even argue further the history of the church matters because it teaches us a lot about things which we would otherwise have to learn at great cost to ourselves. 
It is in the early church's battle over who Jesus is and his character and attributes and nature that we learn about the kinds of things that we should accept as dogmatically true, unwavering on, and things that we know are not such a big issue. So the church today doesn't have to fight those battles over and over again. We should be able to easily sniff out bad teaching and bad theology when it comes to Christ. It is only those who fail to learn that lesson from history that find themselves prone to believe all kinds of false teaching about Christ, and ultimately then all kinds of false teaching about sin and human nature and the need for salvation. But those who learn from history will not be like their fathers. They will actually learn the lesson and adapt the lesson and be faithful. That's the hope. So it is with this goal that Asaph sets into motion a historical recounting of sorts. And in the first 16, uh, or in the verses 9 through 16, he, he centers that in on the Exodus event, the event that happens as God leads his people out of slavery from Egypt. Verse 9, the Ephraimites were armed with a bow, and they turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had showed them. And in the heights of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. So Ephraim is being accused of forgetting God's faithfulness, forgetting his miraculous signs and deeds toward them. And ultimately, those signs and deeds are the ones, verse 12, which are performed in the sight of the fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. Now, the fields of Zoan is where Israel lives and dwells right before God delivers them from Egypt. That's, that's where they make their home. That's where they dwell in the land of Egypt. And so he's saying Ephraim, when they, when they forget God's covenant and they turn away from his works, they're doing that in spite of the fact that they were all present and witnesses to all of the miraculous things that he did to lead them out of Egypt, out of slavery. Now I'll say more about that uh, later because he's going to recount the same event again, naming specifically the, the specific actions and miracles that God does to deliver them from Egypt. But nevertheless, Ephraim stands accused of forgetting God's faithfulness to his people. And now Ephraim is one of the tribes, one of the 12, but Ephraim is not uh, the only tribe guilty of this. Ephraim stands in as a, as a place for all of Israel who apostatizes against God's people. This same plot device or the same poetic device is used all throughout the book of Hosea to contrast the people of the northern kingdom versus the people of the southern kingdom, Ephraim versus Judah the people of God who have apostatized, Ephraim, and the people of God who have remained faithful to the Davidic king, the Judaites. And so the Ephraimites here are the ones who are shown as turning away, being unfaithful, but that really just means all of Israel who is unfaithful. They're a, they're a part that stands in for the whole. So what are these signs that God did in the fields of Zoan? Verse 13, he divided the sea and let them pass through it, and he made the waters to stand like a heap. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 78 thinks the Exodus event is crucial for understanding God's faithfulness. And he doesn't think that it's open to historical retellings or recountings where you can muddy the evidence to say that, well, it really was some natural phenomenon that occurred when God delivered Israel. Psalm 78, the water stood up like a heap and God let them pass through the divided sea. And in the daytime, he led them with a cloud and at night with a fiery light. What other miracles did God do? He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them to drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams to come out of the rock and caused the waters to flow down like a river. All of that is unexplainable by natural science. You have a God who is stepping into history to make his presence known and felt so that his people will believe that he can move time and space and reality as he sees fit. It's part of his self-disclosure. 
our modern rejection of all those ideas to say, I'm not so sure I believe that or the other thing is, is just a testimony of the fact that we reject that God can move in this way. We don't think it's possible for God to step into history and do this kind of miraculous activity, but he, he did it in Jesus' life. He did it in Jesus' miracles, and he was also doing it kind of throughout the Old Testament period to prove that he is the God of Israel over and above the other gods. When you do away with the miraculous testimony of God in history, you do away with the character of God himself. And God becomes nothing more than a collective idea of the people of Israel, not a sovereign man, a sovereign God revealing himself to his people, ultimately in the one man, Christ Jesus. So the Exodus narrative is covered in verses 9 through 16. And then from verses 17 through 31, we have the account of the wilderness wanderings. So God's faithfulness has just been highlighted in verses 13 through 16. He divided the sea. He did all these kinds of miracles. He provided water for the people in the middle of a desert. Verse 17, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. So they've made it out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They've been provided for with water. And the first response of the Israelites is rebellion, grumbling, complaining. They tested God in this heart by demanding the food that they crave. You'll recall that this is when Israel uh, turns to God and says, we're sick of this manna that you keep feeding us. We're sick of all this water. Would that we had meat. Wasn't it so much better in Egypt for us where at least they would feed us meat? They spoke against God saying, can God spread for us a table in the wilderness? So he struck the, water, the rock so that water would gush out and streams overflowed. And he also gave them bread to provide for his people. So despite all their grumbling, what God does is respond to their grumbling by faithfully providing for them evidence again and again that he is their God, that he's here. They grumble and complain against him. He's just delivered them from the Red Sea. They say, who is this God and is he really all that powerful? He gives them water. They complain again. He gives them manna. And as we're about to see in verse 21, they complain again. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God nor trust in his saving power. What does he do instead? He commanded the skies above and opened for them the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate from the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. And he caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind, and he rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sands of the sea. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate, and they, ate, and they were filled, for he gave to them what they craved. Israel complains against God, saying he cannot feed us, he's not powerful, he's not, he's not sovereign, he's not trustworthy, all the doubts creep in. And God does not punish them at that moment, but rather provides for them sustenance and food and provision. And ultimately, the judgment that they face in that account is, is in their craving and their lust for food. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. God is saying, I provided for you miraculously and abundantly, and because you doubted me after all the previous evidence, here's a a slap on the wrist punishment to you. He does not break his covenant with them. He does not cut off these people and abandon them in the wilderness. Rather, he kills a number of them, but not all, even though all were rebelling and grumbling against him. You see then, even his punishment is a mercy because he, he allows those to remain in his midst 
that they could learn the lesson and hopefully do better going forward in the future to remain faithful to their God. In that, that whole set of verses, verse 21 through 31, the God's uh, exact provision for them for quail and manna in the wilderness is supposed to stand sharply against Israel's doubting that they can do so. And actually, uh, in verse 19, the quotation, can God spread a table in the wilderness, is the exact same thing that David says in Psalm 23, uh, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's the, same, it's the same line. God prepares for them a table in the midst of enemies, in the midst of a wandering, bone-dry, aimless land. He is the God who is faithful to do that. And yet his people are the kind of people who would complain about his provision. And so we have Israel's rebellion in the Exodus. We have Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. And ultimately, the historical account will culminate in Israel's false repentance in verses 32 through verses uh, 42, where we see that when Israel has opportunity to repent for God's intervention, their repentance is a false, meaningless show, not true, authentic repentance. Verse 32, in spite of all of this, meaning in spite of all of God's faithfulness, all of his provision, all of his steadfast abiding with them, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days to vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. That means when he punished them, they turned to repent towards him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock. The Most High was their redeemer. But... They flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him, and they were not faithful to his covenant. Well, you might say that these verses present somewhat of a contradiction, because on the one hand, it says they sought God earnestly, and on the other hand, they uh, flattered him with their tongues and with their lips. How do we make sense of this? Uh, this is a little bit what it's like when you go to God in desperate desire for forgiveness of the sin that you've just committed. Uh, whether it was a short temper or anger or frustration or gossip or lust or whatever you name it. You go to God for forgiveness, earnestly seeking him. You confess your sin. You feel free once again to live as a, as a Christian ought to, free before the Lord. And then the next day you turn around and you do it again. And you repeat that cycle without any desire to discipline your heart or to change your ways or to discipline your body or to discipline your mind. That the repentance lasts no longer than the, than the guilt lasts. And it doesn't persist into the future to change habits or behaviors or desires. The kind of repentance that is true repentance is the kind of repentance that leads to a change in heart posture, desire, and behavior. True repentance does not just seek God's face when guilt is on it but it also seeks God's face when the days are going well and it yet desires to be more free of the sin which assails you. As a Christian, sin is something you are always killing. Sin is something you are always at war against. And true repentance would manifest itself not just in a confession of the sin you've committed, but an active seeking out and uprooting of all the sin which still lies present in your life, which you still struggle with, which you still have existing in your world. As Christians, we don't just confess obvious sins that are before us, but we actively seek out and uproot other sins in our life which might be dwelling below the surface or below our perception. Well, one way to say it is this. As a Christian, part of your sanctification is that you pray for God to reveal more sins in your life, 
so you can confess those sins and by his Holy Spirit work on patience and endurance and holiness to pursue all those things. That is true, authentic repentance. And a sin that Christians can commit is the sin of false repentance, the sin of flattery, where we say things to God, we confess sins before God, and as soon as the guilt goes away, we desire that thing once again and go after that thing once again without any second thought. That's a great uh, sin, a great danger, and we need to beware as God's people of that danger. But what is God like as we are this fickle, quickly changing people? Verse 38, yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and he did not stir up all of his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh and a wind that passes and comes not again. Yet how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. So Israel rebels. God punishes their rebellion. They acknowledge their sin and they confess their sin before God. And as soon as he forgives them, they turn right back to that same sin, that same boring cycle of sinning over and over again. And God throughout this whole time is not hoping to punish them, not sitting up in heaven hoping for them to mess up so he can, he can slap them on the wrist. He is compassionate, suffering with them, as verse 38 says, atoning for their iniquity, and he did not destroy them. God's patience is evident, not only in his calling of his people unto himself, but also in his long-suffering with his people throughout their history. It's, that's the very lesson we need to remember as people who walk with God for any length of time. The longer you've been a Christian, the greater the temptation is to settle into some of these patterns where you get good at religiously confessing your sins without actually really working on them. Or you begin to think about God as really the, the judge up there in heaven who doesn't really care if you get better or not, but you just want to make sure you're on the right side of the confessional booth as opposed to the wrong side. God is a compassionate God who wants you to tell your sin to him because he wants to forgive your sin. But also he desires that your confession is true confession. That he actually provides his spirit to help you work on your sins. So that it's not just you saying to God, I'm sorry, I'll try harder. But Lord, I'm sorry, give me more of your spirit so I can work this thing out in my life. So I can be rid of this sin once and for all. So I can be done with whatever has been the constant struggle, the constant temptation, the constant falling that I have been committing for however long now. As Christians, a great danger is to become complacent with sin that we've struggled with for a long time. And what Psalm 78 says is, don't be like that. That's false confession. Learn from the mistakes of these men. Learn from the mistakes of the fathers of Israel so that you would not be like them. So you would learn from their shortcomings. The shortcomings of them in the Exodus account the shortcomings of them in the wilderness account, and the false repentance, which kind of is pervasive throughout this whole section, is capped off when Asaph turns in verse 43 to remind them of just how deliberately God showed himself to his people in the Exodus narrative. In verse 43, all the way through verse 53, he gets very specific about just how God has made himself known to his people. He says that he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. That's once again where 
Israel exists in the land of Egypt. What did he do? Verse 44, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. This is, uh, if you've seen Prince of Egypt, that, that movie, uh, you'll remember some of these events from that. Uh, God turns the water, the Nile, into blood. He sent among them swarms of flies, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. He sends upon them gnats in swarm and frogs in swarm to show that he's the one who's sovereign over nature, not the Egyptian gods. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts and their fruit to the labor of the locusts. God sends locusts into Egypt to eat all of the crops of the people. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath and indignation and distress, and a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but he gave their lives over to the plague. The there in this whole account is not Israel. The people who God is destroying in this account is the Egyptians. And his people, remember, are in the midst of all this stuff happening and seeing God on the one hand destroying the Egyptians and on the other hand preserving Israel in the midst of all that destruction. He's, he's, he's distinguishing between how he treats his people and how he treats those who are not his people. Verse 51, he struck down the first, every firstborn not of all the people who were present in history at that time, of the Egyptians, the first fruit of their strength in the tents of Ham. And what did he do with his people? How did he treat them? He led them out like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. What God does in, in these verses, and, and Asaph is elucidating for us, is how God distinguishes between his people and the enemies of his people how he treats these two different groups. And God's mercy to his people is in some sense a judgment on them. Because when they turn around and they become apostate towards their God, they rebel against him, they sin against him, it's not that they don't know what the cost is if they do that. Before he even rescues them from Egypt, he's showing them how he treats those who rebel against him, who harden their hearts, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and how he treats those who are in covenant with him, the Israelites. He shows them not just the punishment that they would face would they turn from him, but also how faithful he is to preserve them in the midst of all this judgment. And yet, with, that, with those events being elucidated here in these later verses, we see even more so how wicked their rebellion is in the earlier verses. When, when they're led out of Egypt and they complain against him in the wilderness that he won't feed them or he won't take care of them or he won't give them water, they are a people who's marked with a fickle temperament, a short lived uh, memory. They turn from God's most recent deliverance and they forget that they even have a God who they serve at all. And they turn and they go ahead and commit whatever sin is next for them in the future. Now, if that does not describe Christians, there are a few things that come quite as close. As believers in Christ, we find that this is the exact struggle that we face as we walk with God that he saves us, we worship him on Sunday, we remind ourselves in our Bible reading about his wonderful mercies, his miracles, his resurrection, his forgiveness, the cross. And then on our, somewhere between that and our commute to work, or later that day, we forget that there's a God in heaven and we curse our neighbor. Or we forget that there's a God who we serve and we hate someone who bears his image. Or we forget about all his faithfulness to us and we commit the same sin yet again that he has just forgiven us for. 
And, and we are Israel, if you like. In the, in the story of Israel's history here in these verses, we find really our own life copied and pasted. And so the lesson of Psalm 78 still applies. It still abides for us today to recognize a couple of things. One, that we are really a lot like Israel. And that God, who shows his faithfulness to us today, to save us, to put his spirit within us, to renew us, uh, we are just like the people that God did that to in the Old Testament. We can, we can just as easily turn from him, walk away from him, spit on his good name, blaspheme him, and act as though we never knew him to begin with. We can do all those things just as easily as Israel could. And so what's God like when we do that, when we behave in that way? He's a covenant-keeping God. He is a faithful God to his fickle bride. He's the kind of God who is patient, long-suffering, merciful, forgiving, willing to bless time and time again, even in spite of all their shortcomings. And what a good news that is for us who don't have the blessing of our future in, in, in clear view. If you're a believer and you go just on your own life experience, you can very quickly come to the point where you've sinned enough or you've committed enough uh, sin as a Christian where you begin to think to yourself, surely one day God will abandon me. Surely one day God's just going to let me go to my own devices. Surely one day he'll have it up to here and he'll be done with me. And maybe that prevents you from going to him in confession. Perhaps that prevents you from rightly worshiping him in the congregation. Perhaps that causes you to not want to open your Bible and pray and, and seek God's face because you think maybe he's done with me at this point. And that's one of the blessings of history as a teacher over and against experience. Because history doesn't just give us all the actions and events, but also how those things turned out in God's character towards his people. That he actually isn't all that temperamental towards them. He's actually desiring that they would once again turn to him in true confession and seek his face. He's desiring to bless them, to keep them, to uphold them. And as we'll see in, in verses we'll cover next week, he, this isn't just true in the Exodus account and in the, in the wilderness wanderings. This also applies to Israel as they enter into the promised land and all of the, the stuff they go through there. God is the kind of God who is consistent throughout his dealings with his people. And that's good news for us because we are the, the fickle people of God. So if you're a Christian, one of the main things you can learn from Psalm 78, at least these verses that we've covered thus far, is that God is steadfast, unmovable, and he wants you in all of your sin. He wants you in all of your rebellion, all of your boring sin that you do time and time again. When you commit the same sin for the 20th time, God is still there, ready to hear you, ready to forgive you, and ready to walk with you, to bless you, and to keep you, and to cause his face to shine upon you. He knows what we are like, and it is not us who make atonement before God, but as the psalm says, it is he who atoned for their iniquities. Now that's quite a line, quite a statement. This is in uh, verse 38 of the psalm. God being compassionate atones for their iniquities. What this means is he doesn't wait for Israel to get their act together before he forgives them, but rather he provides for them a means by which they can once again be reconciled to him. And he does that of his own free will of his own free activity. Ultimately, as Hebrews tells us, 
this atonement, this the sacrificial system which he implements for his people, is actually an atonement that itself hinges on God's final work on the cross in Christ Jesus. That even when God is suffering with Israel in the Old Testament, he has in view Christ on the cross who will deal with all of the sins that he's currently busy forgiving. He's passing over all of the sins that are currently present in his midst because Christ will atone for them in the future on the cross. That's why he is patient. That's why he is steadfast. That's why he's not showing partiality between Israel and the Egyptians. It's because Christ will be the one who ultimately atones for the iniquity of the people on the cross. And it is Christ's atonement that causes God not to destroy the people of Israel. And it's also Christ's atonement that causes God not to destroy you when you sin before him. He, on the cross, suffers for all the sins which we have committed and which we will commit in the future. And he takes them all upon himself, atoning for our iniquity for the purpose that God can walk in relationship with us and not have to destroy us. And that is not because you, as a Christian, become more and more perfect as you walk with God. The hope is that the Holy Spirit will increasingly conform you to the image of Christ. But that's not the basis on which you walk in relationship with God. The basis on which you walk in relationship with God is that Jesus Christ has atoned finally for the sin. That he has actually dealt with it. Because as history would tell the Israelites and as your life experience and history will tell you, if it's based on your obedience and actions and activity, uh, that is a rather uh, thinly veiled, very poorly put together relationship. It's like putting a bumper on a car and attaching it with duct tape. Uh, it might hold through a couple of bumps, but as soon as you break 45 miles an hour or hit a road bump or whatever, the bumper's gonna flap around and eventually fly off. You need a more firm attachment to hold those things together. And, and God attaches himself more firmly to his people, not by means of their own obedience, but by means of his own righteousness on the cross. It's how God attaches himself to Israel, and it's how he is attached to you as well. This is not a license to go on sinning. It's not a license to behave as we want to with God, but ultimately is a confidence so that we do not despair in our sinning before God, that we do not reach the point where we think we can no longer approach God's throne because of our unbelief. That's all the time that I have uh, for the verses this week. Next week, we will pick it up in verse 54 and following. But let me close with one more word of comfort. When God was suffering with Israel in the wilderness, he knew how he was going to deal with all of their sin in that moment. But Israel still had to hope into the future that God would actually deal with that sin. They still were trusting in some sense in a shadow and a type of how that sin would be atoned for. As Christians, our confidence is way more certain than the confidence that Israel had. Because we don't just have to hope that he will send a Messiah into the future, but we actually can confidently hope that he has set his Messiah into human history to die and atone for sin and to resurrect on our behalf. As the author of Hebrews says, we have a more sure, a more confident, a more substantive testimony. Because we're not hoping in types and shadows, we're hoping in the substance of what the types and shadows pointed to. So whereas Israel, uh, who saw all of God's miracles in, in their midst uh, and yet turned away from God, they were, yes, in some sense, guilty of violating God's clear revelation to them. And yet as a Christian today, I would argue it is worse for us were we to violate God's testimony because 
we actually have better promises and more sure revelations than they did. We don't have manna from heaven. We have the true manna who comes from heaven to everlasting life. We don't have water coming from a rock in the wilderness. We have the water and the well which will never run dry in Christ Jesus. We don't have a hope that God in some point in the future will forgive our sins by some sacrificial system, but we have the Passover lamb who has been sacrificed in our place as a sure confidence for us. So let us not think that Israel stands guilty and we stand removed of sin because we didn't see it with our own eyes, but actually we have a more sure testimony than they did today. And so we have a more sure reason to have confidence in our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which stands now to remind us not only of your consistency throughout history, but also of our lack of consistency throughout history. Your word teaches us not only about who you are ultimately, but it teaches us, God, about who we are and how we are towards you and how you are towards us. And Lord, let that lens be the lens through which we see our daily experience. That we see you rightly through your word as the steadfast God who is patient with his people. And we would see ourselves rightly through, through this lens as the people who are fickle and fleeting and very temperamental. And by your grace, God, would you walk with us? And would you help us to set our hope in you, not our own activities, not our own righteousness, but our, on your righteousness, that we would learn the lesson from Psalm 78, and ultimately, Lord, that it would profit us into our weeks. We pray this in your name. Amen.